Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another episode of the Gary Hour. I'm your host, Gary Levitt. This week, I talked to Adonis Pina, who's lived a really fascinating life. He's been homeless on the streets in New York City. He's walked 200 miles through the desert. He's worked in countless industries, and he was kind enough to come over and share some life stories with me. So I hope you get something out of it, and I hope it doesn't make you feel like you're not living much of a life, because <laughs> I know it made me feel like that. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Future Moments, makers of mobile apps for content creation. If you're a musician, podcaster, filmmaker, go to the App Store and search for Future Moments, because they have an app that will make your life easier. Okay, thanks for listening. Check out the show notes. And uh, email the show, leave a review, subscribe, all that stuff. And most of all, enjoy. All right, Adonis Pina. Hey, Gary. I've uh, known you for a while now, and... uh, we used to live together for a bit in San Francisco. Yep. And then I didn't see you for a bunch of years. Yeah. And then I ran into you. I was in Tompkins Square Park reading a book. And then you walked up looking all dapper. And I asked you where you were living. And you said you were homeless in New York City living in a box. Yes, I was living in a cardboard box behind an abandoned school in the Lower East Side. All right. Now, that's, this is going to obviously... How did you end up there? And I'd like to I'd like to preface this for any listener that you were dressed better than I was. <laughs> you, your shirt was pressed and everything, and also you had an Instagram account documenting yes. all the homeless spots that you were living in. Yes, yes, I did a story on Instagram called "The One Timers." Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who was living on the streets and being on the subway a lot, I noticed there was a lot of homeless people sleeping in places, and. Um, 
I started to think these people have been and are something to someone. Mm-hmm. Even though to us, they're just shadows riding mass transit and, and they're lonely and they're homeless. At one time, they were something. And so I tried to do a, a story called The One Timers. Uh, for example, you would see somebody traveling and say, one time this woman was the local bathing beauty. Or one time he wanted to be the high school uh, soccer coach. You know, at right. one time they wanted to be something or was something. And, and, and now they're just forgotten and that's what that was the tag on all the instagram yes one timers one timers and then it said this person used to be yeah at one time was now what did were you talking to these people uh mostly no the thing was is almost everybody i photographed was sleeping Mm -hmm. um which is then bridged over to another photojournalist uh piece i'm doing called uh scraping by uh-huh. which is a juxtaposition visually to uh, street decay and homelessness and the beauty of the monolithic uh, American skyscraper. So while we live on the streets, scraping yeah. by, they live in skyscrapers. That's a separate yeah. art. What would you call it, an art? I've been doing, I, I just call them photojournalist stories. Photojournal. Yeah. Okay, so how did you get to the point where you were living in a box and was that a a choice well it wasn't a choice i was living in san francisco and i was self-employed selling uh mostly jewelry and doing some consultant for uh the medical industry medical marijuana Mm -hmm. out in the west coast and uh a few business things collapsed a few business uh partners of mine had embezzled some money or mismanaged money Mm -hmm. and everything kind of collapsed so in addition to losing the money um in a shared account the people around me uh shunned me after that and so i had uh no support system and no cash they just left you broke yes so i ran with my tail between my legs uh back to new york did you have to run away from that I kind of felt pressure, yeah. I felt pressure that people didn't want me around. Like, um, was there a physical threat to your well-being? No, no, but when uh, your business partner or friends take from the people you're around, mm-hmm. they don't want you around, even if you're not the one who did something wrong. Right. So uh, I just left. It was better for everybody. And Mainly you. Yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, once I got to New York, I was having a hard time. I was struggling. So while I was homeless, I was actually working at a place called Fresh and Co., which was like chopped salad places, <laughs> right, with, right. Uh, healthy sandwiches and salad. Yep. So every morning I'd wake up at 630 in the morning to commute to uh, across from um, Carnegie Hall uh-huh. to go work. So you'd wake up in a box. Yes. Somehow, how would you sh- clean yourself? I'd have to go early and then I'd go clean in the uh, employee bathroom i would shave and and clean up and uh-huh you know what they call a, a navy shower did you how did you have a change of clothing um i did i was able to keep a mini storage you so okay so you paid for a mini storage yes uh, that was the that was that was really the savior because you can then go to the laundry mat put clothes in the laundry mm-hmm. pick them up and then put them in your storage and right. then you, you don't need to travel with much clothing on you or backpacks of clothing. You know, you could maybe once a day or every other day go and change your clothes and wash up. And so that was like your closet. That your, was my closet. A nice yes. walk-in closet yes. in the city. And Seven Eleven was my kitchen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Would you when you were so you were literally living in a box? Was it dangerous? Was well, this was the thing. I you have to um, 
you have to look around you at what other people are doing. So uh, East Village is very well known for lots of squatter kids and things like that. Mm-hmm. It, we, is this where your where was your box? It was on Tenth uh, Street and Avenue B, that giant abandoned school that takes up almost half a city block. Okay, on Avenue B or on Tenth Street? On 10th Street. Okay. And were there other people, other homeless people there sleeping? Yeah, so that was a thing. I noticed that a lot of homeless in the evening would then show up at that area. That seemed to be a, a, a place where people would um, gather. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's awninged around it. Okay, good and, for the weather. And it's abandoned. So your street smarts told you that it's better to sleep around other homeless people yes. than to find a place alone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Why by, is that? By myself, I felt creeped out that if I passed out, uh, no one would see me. It'd be by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt with the group that uh, they all grouped together for a purpose. Right. So I figured that must be why they're doing it. Is um, there any sort of camaraderie with the homeless? A, a little bit. A little bit. I mean, a lot of... Uh, it is mostly um, tipping each other off on sourcing things or trouble. So, uh-huh. uh, hey, someone's giving away free food or, hey, the, someone's giving away free shoes or, uh, you know, don't go down this street. There's trouble. So what kind of trouble would that be? Uh, well, the east side is uh, has a lot of Latin kings. Oh, would so, they mess with the homeless? No, they wouldn't mess with the homeless. You know what the messed up thing was is... Um, uh, some of the homeless organizations would come and dismantle the homeless people's shanties and take their spare shoes and blankets and tear down their homes so that they'd then have to go to the government-sponsored subsidized shelter. Why would they do that? Because they get money for every time they put a person in oh. a cot. So they're making it uncomfortable for you to live outside. Exactly. Yeah. So they're kind of friends of the homeless, but not. Yeah, it's very strange because as it got cold, um, they would still do that. And wow. uh, they knew that if they tore down your shanty, mm-hmm. um, that you'd have to go somewhere. What was the general feeling towards them from the homeless? Uh, everyone knew it was a scam. They did. I mean, that's how I learned about it. And they told me exactly what happens and right. stuff like that. Uh, were there, what was the biggest fear of living on the street? Rats? Um, I mean, you must have been dealing with rats. I, you know what? To be honest, the biggest fear of living on the streets mm-hmm. is that that's what you're going to continue doing. That you won't ever yeah. move out of it. Yeah. It's a hard circle. I mean, I went to work, had a job, and still uh, stayed homeless for six months. You did it for six months? Six months. For- Luckily, I had gotten um, a job uh, two months before the winter. Mm-hmm. So it was starting to get cold and rainy. I was homeless during Sandy when it flooded. Uh, and I happened to be wearing a bright yellow poncho and had a, um, a workman's hat, a hard hat from mining Yeah, uh, with me. And everybody thought I was a PG&E <laughs> guy. So everybody was asking me to help them and stuff like that. Right. They thought you worked for the electric company. Yes. yes. Yeah. Why did why, why'd you do it for so long? Um, it was, it, it took me that long to find a place. I mean, um, we had a discussion before we got on air about, uh, that you had a hard time finding a decent place to live in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. because of the skyrocketing prices. And so, um, I had to just to save up money. Right. So I was, uh, about three months in, I stopped the, uh, the job at the Fresh and Co and I started working doing construction, which was bringing in a lot more money. Yep. And, um, I was at the, my local bar, 
<laughs> when you're homeless, you spend a lot of time there. Yeah. Um, and were, were you drinking a lot? Yeah, I was drinking a lot more because you find company and shelter. You know, if you sit at the bar and you're a regular, you maybe you buy three beers and the bar gives you three on the house. Right, and does it make it easier to sleep? I mean, those it are does. Rough. It does make it easier to sleep and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, those are rough conditions. Yeah, so I was at the bar and talking to some of the regulars, and I said, "Wow, this winter's coming in fast. I'm going to have to leave town because I have nowhere to live." And someone said, "Well, I got an extra room." So. Uh, although many people I've seen social experiments on BBC where, uh, they put rich people into homeless situations yeah, and they would make fun that, uh, somebody would panhandle or do something and then take the money and go to the pub. Mm -hmm. But if I had not been a regular at that place and been considered a neighborhood friend, right. It probably somebody would not have, uh, offered me a place to live. Right. Cause they see your face every day. They yeah. know you, they're getting comfortable. Exactly. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Did you make any other homeless friends that you wanted to? I made you. one friend that I will uh, think I'll always remember. He was a very, very smart uh, immigrant, uh, African guy. And he was uh, a member of the uh, ancient mystic order of the Rosicrucians. What is that? It is kind of like the Masons. Okay. Um, with a supposedly Egyptian, Sumerian, Mesopotamian background. And he was wearing a ring that I could tell was uh, a, a ring from some kind of a fraternity of some sort. Was, did it look valuable? It looked valuable, and it was beautiful. It had a sphinx face on the side and had some symbols, and I'm very much into collecting uh, literature on the occult. Yeah. So I noticed it, and I asked him about it, and he kind of covered up immediately, I right. think, uh, and, but then said, uh, you're the first person to ask me and, and know what it was. I knew that that's, it was a fraternal ring. I would imagine if you're living amongst the homeless that there's a bit of desperation to maybe steal something of value if you had it yeah yeah there uh, is even though there's a bit of camaraderie if you had something of value that you left there unaccompanied they would take it oh yeah sure they you would. have to be guarded i mean mm -hmm. people will make friends uh, often as strategy less mm -hmm. less than um being lonely and truly wanting a friend right what would you do with your stuff did you have any stuff with you at the time uh no that's that's the thing with the um, sleep with your shoes on the mini storage. Yeah, you go in the box, take your shoes off, put them under your head. Uh huh. <laughs> right. And you use them as a pillow. That's what you do. Yeah. What, how about an alarm clock? No, I uh, a long time ago learned an internal uh, alarm system mm -hmm. uh, that you use. You uh, before you go to sleep, you look at the clock and out loud, you count backwards to where uh, you wanna wake up and you say it three times out loud. You have to say it out loud. You count down the numbers out loud three times in a row and you will wake up at that time. So if you need to wake up at 9 a.m.? I look at the clock and I say it three times in a row and I count the numbers to so from when I go to sleep. To zero, zero, nine? Yeah. You just say that out loud. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go uh, so if I say I go to bed at midnight and I want to wake up at nine, I'll, I'll say, okay, so midnight, that'll be like one, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock. Oh, you six. count them? Okay. And then I'll say nine o'clock. Okay, that's when I wake up. And I'll say it again three times out loud so you can hear yourself say it. Mm -hmm. And that worked. I've never had an alarm clock ever since I learned that. Now, I've noticed a lot of homeless people here in New York City, they actually have smartphones. Yes. You I know, did not have a smartphone at that, at, at that time. No, I had one of those crappy flip phones. Right. Um, but this is, a, this is a, several years ago now. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Well, people were still... A lot of people were getting the smartphones at that time. Yeah. And, I mean, and a lot of the homeless had smartphones. They did? Yeah. What would they do with them? 
Everything that became uh, that became everything you needed. It was a computer, a TV, a mm -hmm. radio. Well, I mean, you were homeless, and you had an Instagram account. And you're posting on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. So. I had an iPod, mm -hmm. and if you go to the coffee shops, which is another great way to uh, burn time, right? You go to coffee shop, have a, a, a coffee, and then get use their get on that free Wi-Fi, yeah. and you could do whatever you need to. And all I had was a little iPod. Mm -hmm. An eye touch. Right. So, that's so that, I, was, that, that was how you got the Instagram? Yeah, that was my whole computer was a little handheld. Do you go back to where you were recently? Um, I walk by it all the time because I ended up getting an apartment uh, a block away from where I was sleeping. Homeless. Mm -hmm. So yeah. every month when you pay rent, do you have that thought is this worth it should i just be sleeping outside no i'm very i'm i'm very happy to uh be indoors um in a small place but uh it's indoors yeah. right and i imagine besides i imagine like you know people messing with you and the biggest threats to sleeping outside would probably i'm guessing would be people messing with you and weather right weather you just had to um Bundle up. So I almost always had like, um, like a bike messenger bag. But what about rain? Well, that's what, I mean, if you knew it was going to rain, uh, you'd go to your storage, grab a raincoat, put it in your messenger bag. And mm -hmm. so you had, usually you always had a pair of socks, extra, and a jacket, maybe extra t-shirt, minimum. And those three items were enough to, uh, if weather changed or you needed to freshen up, you could just pull it out of your bag but you're you're sleeping on the concrete right no what what are you on well you know i don't know uh how far reaching your listenership is but in new york city and every new yorker will know this mm -hmm. is people throw away everything that in new true. york city yeah um i became a master street scavenger mm -hmm. for a while i noticed people throwing away jewelry wow. i somebody moved out of their apartment, put silver rings into a little bag, hung it on the gate in front of their apartment, and said, free jewelry. Wow. Uh, I remember a business going out, uh, like a, an accounting firm or something, and they threw away reams and reams and reams of paper, boxes of unopened pens, boxes and boxes of brand new um, right. clips and stuff. like. They just throw everything away, and New York is very much like that. Yeah, but you can't sleep with jewel sleep on No, jewel but people throw away furniture, futons, boxes, cushions, clothing. So did you always have the same? Was it a cushion or a little mattress? Well, during Sandy, I actually had a full futon in there. You did. <laughs> Somebody threw away a futon. Yeah, I imagine you <clears throat> see that stuff on the street. And some plywood and some old dressers that were broken down. And so the futon was off the ground by about a foot almost. You had it propped up on I had something? it propped up, stacked on top of a bunch of stuff, and then the futon, and I used plywood and old boxes like for TVs and bicycles around it. It was very sturdy. Uh -huh. So if there was water collecting on the street, it would the under? That's what ended up saving me is the water kept rising and rising, but luckily I was off the ground when Sandy came, and finally I woke up, and uh, I was like, oh my God, there's water everywhere. Yeah. Were you wet? Well, just my boots. Right. That was it. What about the the winds? No, no, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it has the big awning, uh, uh -huh. you know, in New York city, they put those big, uh, awnings over everything when they do, uh, some work on the facade of a building. Right. Those are pretty sturdy. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Homeless during Sandy. Yeah. Yeah. It that was crazy. is rough, man. <laughs> and I ended up, you know, like I said, um, 
even even that uh, tragedy, that's a leveler. That's a universal leveler uh, across the board of uh, religion, sex, age, and um, economic status. Uh, when there's a disaster, everybody starts from zero. Right. I mean, I remember seeing uh, the night after Sandy, uh, a group of guys wearing Brooks Brothers uh, blazers out in front of the apartment cooking all the food they had in their refrigerator on a camping stove wow. on the sidewalk. Right. So didn't matter how rich they were. didn't matter how cool they were. They were on the sidewalk cooking their food like everybody else. Yeah. And you couldn't get out. They closed the bridges and tunnels. No, no. Um, a lot of the stores mm-hmm. closed down and put all their food outside, mm-hmm. which uh, created an opportunity for me to do a little hustling. What'd you do? Well, uh, there was this a place on St. Mark's. It's very famous for slider burgers, and they use phenomenal top quality meat. Uh-huh. And the guy, instead of just letting it all rot in his walk-in and cleaning it later, we ap- we were walking by, and he was going to throw it all away. Yeah. So we ran and got a shopping cart and filled an entire shopping cart with top quality meat from a restaurant. We then took that shopping cart and went deep into uh, Alphabet City mm-hmm. and sold that meat to people who lived in Alphabet City. People that but whose apartments were still had electric. Out and- of electricity and all the stores were close, but everybody had camping stoves and were had barbecues, so people were still eating. Oh, okay. So bringing them fresh meat from right. a store that closed, they were like, well, barbecue up and feed the community. Right. So I did that with uh, juices, with sandwich meats, mm-hmm. with uh, all kinds of stuff. So Hurricane Sandy was the most exciting time? It was the, it was the most exciting time <laughs> to be homeless. Yes, it was. All the bars were open and giving mm-hmm. away free booze. Yeah, uh, yeah it was, it was kind of fun. Did you uh, ever wake up and there was uh, a dead homeless person around? Uh, no. Uh, there, was, <laughs> there was never any dead homeless people, but... Um, there was an occasion where a guy who I guess recently had gotten out of jail mm-hmm. had rejoined the group, I guess, of the people who hang out in the park in uh, the East Village. Yeah. And he was a little off his rocker. Right. And uh, evening came and everybody went over to the abandoned school to start sleeping. And this guy was just hallucinating and yelling and snorting and snarling and um, doing weird stuff. And before anything would happen, I decided to press eject at that moment. What does pressing eject look like? It means leave the area. Yeah, you got out of there. Yeah, I got out of there, snuck onto the subway, and uh, and rode the subway for the night. Right. I saw there were some of those pictures of you riding the subway all night. Yeah. There's a sequence of homeless on the subway. Yeah, and that's usually people who ride out to far Rockaway, Rockaway Beach. So it's a very nice, long train ride but they're not getting off the train no they're just on there for the long ride yeah it's a really long ride you may get rousted Mm -hmm. and then you just get right back on the train again and you what is that the a train or c train? that's that's the a train yeah a train yeah so that so the a train is tends to attract more homeless people yeah it does because of the long ride yes it does this is some inside new york stuff (laughs) right here but i imagine it's the same for every city with a homeless situation yeah the the train with the longest rides will attract the most homeless yeah and uh the other choice i noticed is some of the younger uh homeless kids said they like to travel the l because mm-hmm. nobody nobody bothers you on the l it's uh it just goes back and forth the cops really don't roust you out of there and it's uh the community it runs through is i guess more tolerable 
would the would the cops roust you out at the end of the line? Yeah, yeah. Right. You get so they, to the end of the line, and they make sure everybody got out of the train. Right. Would cops ever try and arrest you? Um, they would question you. You know, like uh, like you said, I would be dressed smartly. Right. So they would think that I was drunk or high or messed up or something, and uh, I would just say I fell asleep on the train. Uh huh. Did you, you know? have ID on you? Uh, yeah. You had a legal identification. Yeah. Now, is that good to have or bad to have? It's good. I mean, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I didn't have any drugs on me. I didn't have any weapons. So just to show, you know, hey, yes, I'm, I'm a real person. I just passed out on the way home from work or That's something like them. that. Yeah, I'd tell them I work a late shift somewhere and I'd pass out. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> Now, is there a different community of, is there a community of, of homeless that sleep on the subway compared to the street? I wouldn't say a community, uh, but there's a lot of people who, who sleep on the subway, yeah. That's their gig. That's their whole gig. Yeah. Why would you choose that instead of the street? Uh, well, you're inside. So in the wintertime, as things get bad, or if it's raining and stuff like that, and mm -hmm. windy and cold, the, the subway is very warm and, right. and has shelter. And there's always somebody around. So you always feel like there's, there's somebody around. Right. Do people get robbed? Homeless people get robbed? Um, mostly messed with. Like, I remember passing out on the train and some kid tried to write on me with a marker. Uh-huh. Like so, how old? Uh, he looked like a teenage kid, right? You know, yeah. Some tomfoolery type stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but some people are very uh, adamant about sleeping on the subway is bad because you have to sleep sitting upright, and they say all your blood goes to your feet, and sleeping in a sitting position is very bad for you. Oh. I don't know if that's true, but yeah. Did you have a preference? <laughs> I, you know, sleeping lying down is always better. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So you have, it sounds like you had this pretty nice, cushy situation for, the, for a homeless <laughs> yeah. person. Yeah, real cushy for a homeless person, yeah. yeah. What, what, home, what other homeless people just try and take your spot while you're away at work? Uh, you know, not really. It's really strange. There's almost an unspoken, like, if you see somebody sleeping in the same spot for a few times, yeah. you just assume that's their spot. And no one tries to take nah, it. Yeah, nobody ever tried to take my spot. Yeah. Never tried to take your futon? Nope, never. So there is some sort of respect. Well, I, I think it's just um, if they go over and mess with my stuff, they're as vulnerable as I am. So somebody would go mess with theirs. Is there some kind of prison thing where they're sizing you up and they're seeing that, all right, you know, you're, you're, you could take care of yourself? You know, in the evenings, I think everybody's exhausted and just wants to sleep. And there's a lot of people are extremely high. There's a lot of junkies out there. Mm -hmm, right. Um, it's, it's avoiding that scene in the daytime. That's when people get caught up. You know, right. uh, gossip, uh, people are, are running scams, people are trying to score drugs. Right, trying to get their money to score for the day. Right, exactly, and a lot of people are like that. So you want to kind of avoid hanging out with people uh, outside of, uh, you know, your, your evening uh, bed down. Right, so the daytimes is like the desperate wild times? Yeah, yeah. How, now, you, you obviously developed some serious street smarts. Did you, was there something that prepared you for that? Or is this just born in someone or not? Uh, in a really strange way, living on the road following the Grateful Dead uh -huh. <laughs> may have uh, prepared me for something like this. Uh, you have to do similar things, you know, live, live by your wits. Right. So you, you traveled <clears throat> with the fans of the Grateful Dead? Yeah. Yeah, I did. How long did you do that for? I did that for about four years, maybe. Okay, so you were basically homeless. Yeah, I lived out of a van. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and how would you support yourself? How, how old were you at the time? This was right out of college. Okay. Uh, so I was like 21 years old. Uh, me and my girlfriend and one of my roommates from college purchased a uh, 1972 uh, step truck, GMC step truck, like the Mr. Softy truck or what is now seen as food trucks okay right but this was before there were really food trucks was there a, an oven or anything in there all they had was a, f a fryer and one burner oh man a deep fryer unhealthy eating right there well we uh started a falafel company you did yeah and we sold falafel at dead shows and uh what was it called flying skunk <laughs> <laughs> named after a very famous uh marijuana strain out of amsterdam right <laughs> flying skunk falafel yes nice so you would, this is how you pay for your gas and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We uh, all chipped in and purchased this item. We were all college friends in uh, culinary school. You went to culinary school? Yeah, okay. at Johnson & Wales in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. And uh, we, we purchased this and went on the road. And uh, if we didn't have supplies to make falafel, we'd make something else. But we just sold food and soda and beverages and... And we're able to go from show to show. In the parking lots of the yep, show. Yep, Shakedown Street, as they would call it. That's what they called the whole parking lot? Well, that's what they called the main vending area uh, at a Grateful Dead show. There'll be many areas for parking, but Shakedown Street is where the action is. Aha. Uh -huh. Do you need a special permit to get into? Uh, supposed to, uh -huh. I guess. <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, a it's do what you will. Aha. Uh -huh. Uh, this is a whole shows. world that doesn't really, it doesn't exist anymore, right? It's, you know, the closest thing now would be how uh, Burning Man has uh, commerce without uh, money. Right. Um, so a lot of trading and things like that happened. Um, but we the would whole make, traveling, the whole like that you know everyone that's traveling. Right, ex exactly, exactly. So um, that doesn't quite exist right now, right? You know, after, the, after Jerry died and the dead kind of. Uh, took a backseat fish kind of filled that gap mm -hmm. and a lot of kids would learning the uh the, the road scene yeah uh by doing fish tour uh -huh. which was kind of the con the younger continuation of that okay so you're 21 you're you you're fresh out of college yeah you've got a girlfriend and you just like let's just travel and party and hang with this band yeah 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 now i could see doing that at 21 but for four years how does it not get old well, um, it's a seasonal thing, just mm -hmm. like um, people who snowboard, which is another thing I used to do is, is follow the snow. Right. So uh, the dead, dead shows are seasonal as well. So they would travel across the U.S. and end up on the West Coast. And then there would be a hiatus. So now you're kicking back on the West Coast, which is very friendly for traveler people. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of... Um, uh, woods there and public mm -hmm. spaces and national parks and a lot of hippie scenes and that kind of culture and it's, out there. it's also not as rough as the east coast the east coast you have several cities yeah. that are pretty you know they're rough yeah baltimore dc new york is, it's philly yeah west coast it's like weed growers right know, and the weather's nicer too i mean right. in general weather if you stay uh in in california arizona colorado nevada that area is gorgeous and the weather's super nice so you'd end up uh, like a snowbird almost people go into florida for the winter you'd go follow dead tour and end up in california for the winter so how long would the hiatus be it would be like a few months and then you'd take up uh, part-time jobs and in um 
and in addition, you know, learn how to get things for next to nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we made a local deal with a coffee shop and noticed that they were serving phenomenal fresh pastries every day. So we asked, well, what do you do with all the pastries? She said, we throw them away. Right. So we said, well, what if you just put them in a nice box and put them out behind the door instead of throwing them away? And that way you're not giving them to us. Right. And she agreed that it was a waste to throw away the fresh food. Of course. But she couldn't give them to us. She legally couldn't give them to you because if she did and then you ate them and got sick, you could sue Well, so she would just, the boss doesn't want to see people giving away food. So we made the same deal with a local place that was like a Mm 7-Eleven, but it was all organic fresh food, prepackaged, where you open the door instead of like horrible, crappy, a vending machine ham sandwich. It was like whole grain bread with avocado, that version. And the guy did the same thing. So we knew it worked. So we went to him and said... When food's about to go out, put it in a box, put it out back, and then we'll just pick it up. And we started going from store to store uh-huh. and making this happen. And that's basically what sustained you for the... That and some part-time jobs. I had done some work for uh, Circus Vargas, mm-hmm. which camped out at the Marin County Civic Center. And Is it an actual circus? It's an actual traveling circus under a big tent, and uh-huh. so they have to uh, hire locals to break down and set up bleachers, to yep. sweep uh, lion shit, to, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to uh, wash the backside of an elephant, you know, things like that. So they would hire local people for the two weeks while they were in town. So we'd take lots of these little weird yeah. jobs here and there to make some money. And you get to experience all these different little towns and cities. Right, right. And put yourself in the shoes of uh, what somebody else does for a living. So I've been, you know... Uh, I've been a farmer, I've been a circus worker, I've worked in restaurants, I've done ski resorts. You kind of get to dip your toe in everybody's little pool. Mm -hmm. Live all the little gamuts of life. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And I got to ask how your relationship sustained this. It didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine that puts a a pretty good stress on a relationship. Uh, A big part of it was a love triangle had formed between myself, my girlfriend, and my other business partner. He fell in love with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And so things got weird. This is so, this so happens in the tw- in our twenties. Yeah, this yeah, is so, and, and happened- traveling closely together. I mean, you were in a in a illustrated fantasy rock band. Yes, at one time, Heavy Pebble. Yeah, and um, you know when people travel closely together in a van. Yeah, for days and months at a time, things get weird. Things do get weird, and they they can spiral out of control. Did Did you ever have any uh, weird love triangles when you were traveling and uh, doing music? Uh, not when I was traveling, but. You know, earlier on, like college stuff, just stupid stuff that happens. Right. You know, just, I think that just happens when you're that age. Yeah. It's just par for the course. It's probably good, though. Keeps you from ending up in a long relationship when you're too young. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the girlfriend and the business partner, did they end up leaving? What ended no, up the, the business partner had a... Um I guess a mental, emotional breakdown mm-hmm. and um, went home to Canada, which is where he's originally from. And so did you and your girlfriend stay? We stayed for a little while and then that kind of just fizzled. Yeah. Um, the road does take its toll. It does. And, yeah. And the, you know, the cool thing is um, being on the road is exciting, mm-hmm. um, but you do have to take downtime. You have to get off the road, settle a couple of months at a time. Right. And get yourself together, uh, keep your house in order before you go back on the road. Yeah. But you did it for 
four years. Yeah. What made you stop? Um, I ended up in New York City, and I had a lot of friends living in the city at that time. So mm-hmm. I you decided just, to uh, visit with them. And you just didn't want to keep, you didn't want to do another tour? No, no. Why do you think you had had enough at the time? Uh, you know, that's a long time living in a van yeah. uh, with people. And I just, uh, I wanted to live in something that wasn't rolling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that's my thing too, is like it was touring and traveling. Right. The thing that gets me the most is the over-socialization. Right. I just, for some reason, I'm just built like I just need my own room and to be able to shut the door. Yeah, I'm very much a, a, a lone wolf in general. I mean, most of my days off, I spend by myself. I rarely go out and do things unless it's, you know, a big deal. But when you're living on the road or on the street, oh, you, you get none of that. You're with somebody all the time. Yeah. yeah. That's the part that would wear me down, but it didn't seem to wear you down. Um, also, you know, the thing is, uh, com- there's a comfort to repetitiveness, to knowing what's going to happen. Uh-huh. And, and there was not, there was none of that. I mean, you're on the road, you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so there was never a uh, time to just, uh, exhale, relax and be like, ah, right. But there's also a freedom. Like there's nothing like just sure. getting on the highway and like all, there's no bills, there's no dishes. It all just brushes right past your shoulder. Uh, yeah, you know, on the road, because we were going from dead show to dead show, uh, I had thought in my mind it would be nice to do the same roaming of America uh, without um, an appointment or without a show schedule, uh, right. uh, just to randomly wander and, and see what happens. Yes. I've always thought that would be a great thing to do. If you like to place, just stay longer. Right, exactly. But with traveling with such a large amount of people with the Grateful Dead. Yeah, there's safety. There's there. safety. You knew so many people, I would imagine. Yeah, and uh, you can, uh, if you run out of gas money, somebody will give you gas money. Right. If you run out of food, somebody will feed you. It's a pretty supportive community, I yeah, would imagine. Yeah, it's like a strange carnival circus uh, atmosphere kind of thing, and everybody there is a carny. Yeah, Was is there also, because there's also this bit of a, lecherous maybe is the best word like i picture the guys like oh free massages yeah let me Uh, massage your girlfriend (laughs) there's like a bit of that kind of like oh i'm your best buddy and then i'll just steal all your stuff yeah yeah there's plenty of that happening um i guess like i said before a lot of that now has transferred over to like burning man Mm -hmm. um there's a there's a cartoon uh called lucy the daughter of the devil uh-huh. On, uh, I think you can get that on Adult Swim. Uh-huh. And there's a scene where they go to Burning Man and they have somebody walking around yelling, free massage, free massage. And yeah. people are like, get away from me, get off of me. <laughs> so it is a cliche. It is, totally. But the thing about Burning Man is that it's come and gone in a week. Yeah. <laughs> where the Grateful Dead, you see the same people, when people that were touring with them right, all right. the time. Yeah. I mean, for four years, you probably traveled basically with some of the people for the whole time yeah there was a lot of people you'd see every uh every time you went Mm -hmm. um some people would go and you'd see them all the time for two years and then they'd also drop out for whatever reason yeah would they tell you be like i'm done i'm done with the road you know it was it was funny because you'd get sketched out there'd be somebody who had been on the road for years with you Mm -hmm. and then for some reason something happened and they'd leave the scene and they'd come back not dressed in tie-dyes not with long hair uh, dressed like a uh, regular suburban schmo, and you'd feel 
like kind of sketched narc. out. Yeah, like cop. they could be a narc. They could be a cop. Yeah. You suddenly, just by changing the appearance and not being in the scene for a few minutes, <laughs> you would immediately think, oh, my God. Right. Well, I imagine there's a lot of people dealing drugs. There is a lot of people dealing drugs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's probably the biggest industry in the <laughs> Grateful Dead world. I, I, um, the only time I'd ever seen a thousand hits of LSD a before. Whoa. Um, yeah. That's enough to turn this, uh, this area of Queens insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot of drugs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is why you had to really rely on people. Could you rely on people? You know, you, you could. You had to whittle it down. Mm -hmm. uh, just in real life. The same as real life. Most of these little scenes in anything in the world mm -hmm. you get involved into. You're a bass jumper and you've got all your crew. Uh, you're into BMXing or you're a comedian. Uh -huh. There's going to be a community around you and there's going to be a tight-knit group right. that's even smaller. Yeah. And then there's going to be people you can actually say that are your friends without putting fingers in quotes. Right. <laughs> yep. Next to it. Right. So it's, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So this was a good training ground for the homeless chapter. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. And uh, so you landed in New York City. And was it must have been nice to just have a bed to sleep in that was not moving? Yeah. And what did New York City bring you? Had you lived there before? I'd never lived there before, but I'm from upstate New York. Mm -hmm. So it's close enough. Where and upstate? I'd, up next to Cooperstown, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. It's okay. Otsego County area. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty far from New York City. That's three and a half hours. Yeah. Yeah. From here. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I got to the city, I was lucky enough to have a family friend working for a pretty famous commercial photographer, um, stuff like Marlboro cigarettes, Ford cars, uh, you know, stuff, stuff that's, you know, print ad and commercial stuff. Did they give you a job? Or they something? gave me a job mm -hmm. pretty much immediately, which is so lucky in New yeah. York to just show up as a hippie who right. fell out of a van on dead tour and then get a job at a very, very high end uh, photography studio. But mm -hmm. um, I was willing to do all the grunt work. So I was a studio assistant. So that meant everything from painting to sweeping to getting coffees to cleaning lenses. So You, you had a culinary degree. Yeah, I, I went to uh, Johnson & Wales in Providence, Rhode Island. Did you... Uh not one of you did you were you not that interested in cooking um yeah I, I i don't know i think that um i hadn't even had a chance i had just arrived in the city mm -hmm. and within several weeks and it usually takes you a couple of weeks to a month to get a job yeah you know, especially yeah. if you're new somewhere um before i could even do a lot of work uh hitting the pavement i was offered the job right so you take it i was like i'll take to get it. your feet settled yeah and it's good money. But the passion for uh, fulfilling what you, doing what you studied in college didn't really grip you? No, no. Um, you can always take uh, breaks from, from cooking. Uh, mm -hmm. I wasn't, it was a great skill and a job that I had uh, in many states and in many places, but it wasn't something that I would cry if I wasn't cooking. You know, right. I wasn't like that. Right. So um, what was the uh, best thing you did in New York City and what made you leave? Um, well, I, uh, after that, I, um, I became a commercial plumber because mm -hmm. it was, I was offered even more money. Commercial plumbing in New York city. I specialized in building laundromats in all of the five boroughs. You learned plumbing. Yeah. From scratch. Um, how'd you learn plumbing? I worked under a guy who worked for Rikers Island and was a 
a plumber for the city of New York. And so he knew all the insides on how uh, to do plumbing within this municipality. So you learn how to weld pipes, how to yeah. tape them and all that? Everything, everything. And we just did laundry mats. And that's very easy because it's an empty space. And then you put hot and cold, hot and cold, hot and cold, waste, 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 waste. Right, so you're putting all the pipes. Yeah, in the and it's, it's the same. It's the same, repetitive. You see the line of washing machines. The back of it looks the same. Right. Um, so, yeah, I did, that for, I did that for a while. I mean, that's a great skill to have. Everyone always needs a plumber. And I made a, lot, I made a lot of money doing that. Yeah. I uh, then met the first uh, Irish Jew uh-huh. that I had, a Russian Irish Jew that I had ever met. His name was Max Seligman, and I'm going to throw his name out there. Yeah. Uh, Max would tell this great story of why there were his family were Russian Irish Jews. Uh-huh. So a Oy. long time a long time ago, uh, several generations back, his family paid uh, somebody with a ship to bring them to America. And what the man on the ship did was get everybody's money up front, put them on the boat, and bring them to Ireland and say, "Ta-da, you're in America." No, and they didn't know they would just get off the boat and say, wow, it's so beautiful and green here. And before they could figure out what was happening, he would sail off. And then they would all realize this is not America. I've been dropped off somewhere else. This was his scam. So this was uh, how my friend Max Seligman's family became uh, Russian Irish Jews. But how did they get to the States? They never got to the States. <laughs> they just drop them off in Ireland and everybody grew up in Ireland. Uh-huh. They never got brought to the United States. Oh no. So finally, you know, Five generations later, uh, Max was um, an audio engineer for Video Fashion, mm-hmm. which is a television magazine on TV. And this is how you got into fashion. And that's how I got into fashion. He liked me, mm-hmm. and um, his wife, who was this Jamaican lady, who hated everybody. I mean, she was notorious for hate. She would hate a baby. Yeah. I mean, she hated everybody. <laughs> All a puppy, babies. You know, a kitten she would hate. Uh-huh. And... Uh, Max brought me in and said, hey, my wife, Tracy, really likes this guy, and uh, I think he's pretty cool. And everyone's eyes just kind of lit up and were like, wait, Tracy likes this guy? Tracy hates everybody. Didn't you know Adonis used to be a baby? (laughs) Yes. So just because um, this person who hates everyone thought I was a nice person, they gave me a chance with zero skills. I mean, I'd never worked for television production before. Right. So they started me off in the mailroom, and I made copies mm-hmm. of videos for uh, airing in uh, 112 different countries in 15 languages. This is VHS days? Yes, VHS days. So yeah. I was called a tape dub operator. Mm-hmm. So you have all these skills. <laughs> you know how to cook. You know how to plumb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And when I met you... Uh, was in San Francisco. Was that your next step? Did you go yeah, uh, from... Well, I had worked for Video Fashion for five and a half years. I had worked my way out mm-hmm. of the mail room and tape dub to an independent contractor as um, an assistant, yeah. on-location production assistant. And I was doing very well with that, and I uh, had lots of work outside of Video Fashion in addition, CNN people, uh, POP and Associates, stuff like that. Um, but then there was a market crash in Asia, And a big part of our market of selling both uh, fashion video and uh, we also used to make uh, karaoke videos Uh for the Asian market. Well, the the money in the Asian market crashed 
and it hurt us really badly. And so they had to cut anyone who wasn't in-house. Mm. And because I was independent contractor, they cut me that year. Right. Which gave me an opportunity to go on the road. So I took a vacation with uh, my friends, Martin, yep. Kelly, and uh, a young lady named Ariana. Uh-huh. And we borrowed her RV and rode around the United States and ended up in San Francisco, which is where we ran into you. So did, had you any plans to settle in San Francisco? Oh, absolutely not. None. No. Just and in fact, when I first got to San Francisco, uh, I had a real hard time with the culture. You did, yeah. It is a, coming from New York City, it's a big culture shock. It was weird. It was weird. And one of the weirdest and scary parts is that there aren't people on the streets at night. Right. So I remember walking for a city. through the Mission District. And for those people who don't know what the Mission District is, it is if there's any possible chance that there is a life from other planets mm -hmm. coming to Earth, they're blending right in in the Mission District. <laughs> this is where they're living. It is a, a heroin uh, cop spot. It's uh, homeless people, uh, transients, and aliens from other planets live in that area. Yeah. So walking home late at night, I remember being fearful that there weren't enough people outside so that if I was mugged, there would be no one to yell to. Right. Um, that creeped me out. I remember when you first arrived in San Francisco, you told me a story of being on the bus and the buses in San Francisco are electric and they work terribly because the, the electric part of the bus always comes off the electric power grid. Yes. And the bus driver has to get out and take the pole and try to put it back on the electric wire. Right, right. And it's kind of just humiliating. <laughs> It's funny because it, it, it comes off when it takes a turn. Right. And it happens a lot. It happens quite a lot. And then everybody has to get off the bus and you're in the middle of a four-way traffic jam. Yeah. And you could almost walk faster than the buses. But you told me this story. You were on a bus and you saw a fight between someone. Oh, so I was on one of these buses and a man who was missing an eye. Yes. This is um, and had a big, just an open healed eye socket. Uh -huh. So it was like a caved in skin and he's sitting like at the very front seat next to the driver then the next stop a guy gets on dressed like a fairy i mean with little butterfly wings and a little tutu and he had sparkles all over him and as he walked past the guy with no eye sparkles flew out and sparkles landed inside the divot where the guy's eyeball used to be uh, in the socket. So, so I'm looking over and there's a fairy and yeah. a guy with no eyeball that is now filled with glitter. <laughs> and I thought to myself, Oh my God, this is crazy. And just then the bus goes to take a turn and the arms fall off of it and right. it detaches from the wires and the whole bus goes dead. And I remember you telling me this story and me think like you're like a like a burly you know you're like a burly tough guy tattoos and you coming from new york you know you got that new york swagger on you still and you're telling me like how crazy it is and i remember thinking okay good this 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 affirms my feeling that yes yeah, san francisco is weird <laughs> and crazy and like hear, hearing this guy come from new york being overwhelmed with how strange it is. I was well, like, my yes. friend that I'd went out there, uh, uh, Martin, yeah. uh, kept saying repeatedly, it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, Adonis. Okay, you have to throw away living in New York. It's not, it's not a New York minute anymore. Right. It's now a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's everything that it offers. It's not one thing. And, and it was hard to shed the uh, mile a minute 
yeah. uh, you know, thing that you do in New York. Because if you're not on it, somebody else is in New York. You know, right? And in San Francisco is one of the few places where I was always promoted with my job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's very strange to promote me. <laughs> uh, I, I remember you had uh, uh, one of the manifestations of one of your music groups. You had posted not from L.A. specifically on your flyers. Oh um, yeah, because there's this rivalry San Francisco has with Los Angeles. <clears throat> yeah, I thought it was kind of funny that you specifically put on your flyers not from L.A. I think we got a write-up that said we were, or something like that. I can't remember. Right. And I think you also, um, a professional photographer, took pictures of your group, and you looked more glamorous than you wanted to. Right, In yeah. the photos, and so you also did not want to think that uh, yeah. you were this L.A. glam group. San Francisco at the time uh, was very kind of its own thing. It was at the beginning of the dot-com boom, is when I met you out in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um me and Martin uh, were working at a place um, called The Brainwash, mm -hmm. which is called The Brainwash. It's a laundromat and a coffee shop, but it's called The Brainwash because the apartment across the street is where Patty Hearst was kept in a closet and brainwashed. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. That's where Patty Hearst was kept. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, before they transferred her in, into L.A. Now, with the Symbionese Liberation Army. Right. Yeah. San Francisco is a pretty special place. <laughs> it's very special. And we work together there at the Punchline Comedy Club. Yeah, and the Warfield Theater. Uh, um, right, right. That's all owned by Bill Graham Presents, yeah. uh, the Warfield, I mean, the Fillmore Theatrical Society, uh, SFX. That's the company? Yeah, SFX bought everybody out. So it uh, includes uh, the Fillmore, the Warfield, the Shoreline, the Punchline Comedy Club, all of the venues that, uh, that used to be Fillmore Theatrical Society, Bill Graham. Right, which uh, was a pretty cool place to end up working. It was a great place yeah, to work, yeah. Yeah, I saw so many concerts, so many comedians. Many, but, many. But uh, you had this, I remember, I, I wasn't there the night that this happened, but... There was a legend of you attacking a comedian. Yes, I think it was, it was Paul Mooney. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's already well known for having kind of an attitude. Of, I mean, he's a great guy, but he, the guy's a pretty sour person in general. And we were, you, were working, you were the cook. I was the cook. So I was running uh, concessions in both locations, both at the Punchline and at the Warfield Theater. So mm -hmm. I was in charge of the food at both locations. Right. And on that particular night, Paul Mooney showed up late um, for his gig. He came in, he was already, you know, uh, staticky and frantic, and we asked him why he was late, and he said that he got in a fight with the taxi driver, and the taxi driver kicked him out of the cab on the way to the show. Uh -huh. So he was already in a bad mood, and he, obviously he must have been out of control. I mean, getting kicked out of a cab. Yeah. I don't know what you got to do to do that. Yeah. So he got there, and he started snapping his fingers at me, saying, I need to get some food now. I need food now uh -huh. because he was late. He snapping wanted to his eat. fingers. He started, and I'm just not a person who uh, does well with snapping your fingers to beckon me over. Yeah. And I told him, I have a bunch of tickets up and I'll get you your food as soon as these tickets are gone because it was a packed house. I mean, he brings in the crowd. Right. Um, he then just continued to taunt me from the doorway. Uh -huh. Now, the green room doorway is next to the kitchen doorway. And he just wouldn't stop. And finally, I lost it. Now, let me say this before I say anything else. I was doing a lot of meth at that time. <laughs> that I was 
working there. And also cooking stressful, and you have tons of tickets yeah, up. Yeah. You have a whole room looking up for uh, food. So there was a knife sitting on the counter in front of me, uh-huh. and he had said something, and I took my hat off, and I threw my baseball cap to the ground, and I put my hand on the counter to jump over the counter. Mm-hmm. Well, I put my hand directly on the knife as I jumped over the counter. So Paul Mooney saw me jumping with a knife in my hand coming after him. Did you grab the knife? I didn't grab the knife, but it was close enough. Right. He flipped. Security runs to the kitchen. The security guard has to hold me down. Paul Mooney is freaking out. Uh, it was a big deal. Um, everybody knew that there was a fight going on. The audience figured out what was happening. Um, fast forward the few days later. Wait, did he do a show? He did a show. Uh-huh. He did a show and he killed. And you kept your job. I kept my job. The, a few days later, I run into Rick Bates, who uh-huh. at the time ran all of the uh, bookings for okay. all of those places for Bill Graham Presents. Okay. And Rick Bates, instead of getting mad at me, says, Adonis, I don't know what you did, but that was the best show Ever. I mean, he was on fire so good that we're booking him for more shows. Uh-huh. So instead of getting in trouble, uh, I guess it made him have a great show and I kept my job. Yeah. Did, did you speak to him later that night? I never spoke to him ever again. Did you see him later that night? No. Did, how, how, did they send you home? No, I finished my shift in the kitchen and when he was done, he, he exited. He just stayed out of your way. He just stayed out of my way. Did he know? ever get his food? He never got his food. No, he did not ever get his food. Yeah. Um, Yeah, working at the Punchline was amazing. I got to meet a lot of uh, great people. And um, to see what a person really is like Mm -hmm. uh, off the stage is quite interesting. Um, Some people you would... You would say, yeah, I knew that that guy was probably going to be a great guy. But yeah. some were surprising. Um, one person who's absolutely a man of the people is Dave Attell. Uh-huh. He, uh, when he came, he would drink with the crowd. He would uh, afterwards hang out with the staff. And we'd even go and play um, like games like Yahtzee and stuff and drinking games with them afterwards. Oh, cool. I mean, he would come to company parties. Yeah, he was a fun guy, and he hung out with all of the workers. He was great. Um, another one I was surprised by was Margaret Cho. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had done a big show at the Warfield. Now that's a big show. Yes, compared to the Punchline, it's yeah. a huge theater. And just finished us several nights there. And afterwards, uh, instead of heading straight back to L.A., she hung out for a few nights and sat at the bar to watch the comedians at the Punchline. Mm, nice. I thought that was so cool of her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was so nice. She was such a nice lady. Yeah. Um, somebody who was probably the craziest person as far as getting onto the stage was uh, Arsenio Hall. Uh-huh. What happened? Um, this is way after his show. This is way after. He's, we're talking 1999, 2000. Yeah, he's his not His show his was already so, so old. He had the whole back of the kitchen cleared. So that he could come through the back doors of the kitchen with three security guards in trench coats and sunglasses. He comes through the kitchen and then gets escorted onto the stage as if. I don't know. Security guards escorted him to the stage. To the stage, three security Mm -hmm. guards. So back door, through the kitchen, security guards, and then onto the stage. I wonder what the audience thought just watching. I someone. was blown away. I mean, um, 
I remember one time we had Robin Williams do a pop in. Uh-huh. Dude just showed up. I mean, Robin Williams, that's a way bigger name right. than Arsenio Hall. He just showed up. Uh, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Just, you know, just show up, do a show. Yeah. Um, Carlos Mencia, just show up, do a show. None of these guys were bringing uh, entourages of security guards. Yeah. Uh, to get on stage. So that, I always thought that was quite strange. Yeah, pretty cool experience to see all those comedians in a pretty small room. Yeah. Um, one that I was surprised of his uh, quick success after I met him was Arge Bark- Barker. Arge Barker. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a regular. He was a weekly regular at the San Francisco Punchline. Um, many nights, uh, he would also, afterwards, the crew would go um, dancing over at the Cat Club in the Mission, uh-huh. which did 80s night. Right. I mean, who doesn't like 80s night? <laughs> and uh, he would hang out with everybody. And he was one of the regular guys. I mean, he didn't stand out as someone who seemed like he was on a rocket ship to success, but he was good. Right. And then like uh, two years later, he did the marijuana logs. And that was a, a surprising change from, you know, amateur night at the punchline to uh, an entire show. Did he come back with three bodyguards being escorted? <laughs> <through> the kitchen? <laughs> I never saw him again. <laughs> Uh, I always wonder if this was a real thing or if this was his fellow comedians busting chops. But uh, we're all dancing one night at the Cat Club. And Arge was like, all right, so what's everybody doing? You know, where are we going after this? Mm-hmm. And then another comedian tapped me on the shoulder and goes, be careful of Arge. All he does is mooch drugs off of people. <laughs> I was like, uh I don't know if we should invite him now now in hindsight. Yeah. I'm wondering if they were just busting chops. Probably sounds like uh, it. for it but I was, you know, new to the scene and I was trying to be uh, you know, yeah, slick. But yeah. it was kind of funny. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So after you spent some time in San Francisco. Yeah. Fun times. Yeah. Why did you leave? Um, I left there to go snowboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd lived in, uh, uh, mother's original cookie factory 
in Lake Merritt, Oakland. In Oakland, right. After that, I believe you spent a, a Christmas with us and did a Secret Santa. I, I did, and there was, a, there was a girl living in a hammock hanging from the ceiling. That was her room. It was a giant uh, <laughs> naval cargo net. Uh-huh. That looked like a spider web suspended, yeah. Yeah, it's one of these big community warehouse spaces, basically. Right. Uh, I guess How many the, people live there? I think we had like 15 roommates. And uh, for reference point for the, your audience, um, recently there was the ghost ship uh, warehouse in, in Oakland that burned to the ground. Uh-huh. So it's, it's that, that kind of deal. Oakland and San Francisco have a lot of these uh, old communal. warehouses with a lot of uh, community living in it, artists and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah communal living, community kitchen, everyone has to put in. Right. And then there's like one cook or... Well, yeah, nobody does shit is really right. the reality. It just shows it. how it doesn't work. <laughs> it does. This is why, you know, uh, I noticed that young people right now are into the romance of, of communism. Yeah, it does not work. It doesn't work. And I always tell people it's not because of uh, ideology or anything like that. I I always tell them it's because math is against us. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you can get 10 people to agree, that's amazing. Right. If you have 25 people, maybe one person will not want to go. Right. You get 100, 10 people don't. As the numbers go up, more people don't want to go and do the same thing. Do you think it's that or you think it's maybe just human nature? Some people are more lazy than others. I, I don't. I think it's because you can never get everybody to agree. And mm-hmm. you can get the concept of communism to work in a small number. Right. Now, the Jews have what's called a kibbutz. Right. Uh, so the commune, the commune or a community or a kibbutz, you, uh, you want to be part of that. Yeah. Right. You've actually put yourself into position to be part of the community or part of the kibbutz. So mm-hmm. you've made a conscious decision to participate in it. Right. In something like communism, you have not, you know, asked to be part of it. You just are. Right. And so therefore, that's why it doesn't work. It's a large mother, number of people. In the mother's cookie factory, that's kind of one of the things you agree on to live there. Yes. But why didn't it work? <laughs> well, it, 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 do, it doesn't work because... Um, there were some really smart people working there, and a lot of these uh, community uh, groups in the Bay Area have some, a lot of the techie kids are living there, mm-hmm. uh, along with DJs and artists and stuff. Right. Um, uh, one of my friends who had, was working for Microsoft, you know, did the, he said uh, 11% of the people are going to do most of the work right. for everybody else, and he says, as long as you're okay with that, then you can live here. You know, that's how you survive mentally yourself. You know, he didn't say that that was, if you accept it and you understand this meme, then you'll you'll be very happy, you know, do the cleaning because you want it clean, not because you want somebody to do their job. Right. So that you just had to think that way. That's kind of a good lesson for life in general. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to get upset that the sink was filled with dishes. Well, if nobody else gives a shit that the sink's full with dishes, you're now the only one who does. Right. So if you want it clean, then you clean it. Right. So I, I had learned to, if I wanted to cook, I did the cooking. If I wanted to clean, I'd have to do the cleaning. And you just have to accept that. And now this is where human nature comes in because then they'll see that, oh, if we leave the sink full of dishes, Adonis will clean it because he cares more. This is true, but it's also a double-edged sword. The person who the community sees is always participating also has uh, a little more power within the community, a little more standing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nobody wants to kick out the one person who's doing shit, <laughs> right. getting things True. done. Yeah. So yeah, there's a little more leeway, but, long- uh, I got sick of that after a few years. Yeah. And, um, uh, Martin, uh, yeah. the reoccurring character, yeah. 
uh, he wanted to go snowboarding and said it would be good for my head. Mm-hmm. And so I, uh, I took him up on that and I moved up to Summit County, Colorado. This is like a semi-permanent snowboarding. <laughs> You're yeah, not I, just like going for the weekend. No. I, uh, You're moving to Summit County. For the County. next seven and a half years, I had a minimum of a five mountain pass. So you just decided to move to Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. And now going snowboarding is very different than moving to Colorado. Yeah. Um, well, I, I went there. Uh, some of, the thing is, is Summit County has five ski resorts. Uh-huh. It's impossible to not have a job there. Right. I mean, you'd have, you'd have to try really, really, really hard to not have a job there. They have to import people. Most people don't know this, but ski resorts have to import People from Australia, New Zealand, South America, the islands uh, in the Caribbean, just to get enough staff. Right, because it's seasonal work. They right. Need, yeah, they need a lot of people. In and, and, and yes, it's a massive resort, but it's in a rural place. So once the snow goes, you're in the middle of just nothing. It's right. just mountainous terrain. Now, were you staying there year-round? I, yeah. What I would st- you do on off-seasons? Uh, get a crappy cooking job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you like living there? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was really nice. I stayed healthy, and it was fun. And, uh, you know, I guess it's like uh, the surfing community, snowboard community. You know, we're chasing snow constantly. You know, uh, what's cool about the whole uh, area up there is people will put signs on their store that says Powder Day closed. And everyone understands that. Like, right. nobody freaks out. Um, what's really funny is there's a sushi restaurant uh, up there in uh, Silverthorne, Frisco, and if you call them to find out the times, it says we are open till closing. Right. So, <laughs> and this is, this is very different than New York where things just run and yeah. they run how they're like correctly, you know, this, all the time yeah. on it's on it's on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, in a snowboard community and I'm sure it's the same in a surfing community. There's great waves coming in, right? Just close the doors. Everyone's going surfing the same with the, with snowboarding. It's a great powder day. It just dumped last night. Guess what? Nobody expects you to show up to work. Yeah. You're going to get fresh powder. And you're probably pretty set up for this kind of lifestyle coming from San Francisco. Yeah. Cause it's, it's laid back like that as well. Yeah. Very much so. So you stayed in Colorado for about seven years. Uh, Colorado for a few years and then Huge. went to uh, Oregon mm-hmm. and I worked at the Grand Timberline Lodge at the top of Mount Hood, mm-hmm. which is the opening uh, aerial uh, sequence to The Shining. Okay. Uh, so every night at midnight at the Grand Timberline Lodge, they play The Shining. What brought you there? Why did you leave? Snowboarding. Snowboard. Okay. <laughs> we just wanted to do more snowboarding in a different location. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and you just oh. doing... Also, because a friend of ours who inherited a lot of money and was involved in um, Intel Mm. and uh, several record labels uh, had a house right there at the foot of Mount Hood that we could live in, like a mansion, like a theater room and and a sauna and hot tubs and guest rooms and uh, everything. Pretty big draw. Unbelievable. (laughs) So... uh, yeah, we lived uh, we lived in the mansion at the foot of Mount Hood and and worked up at the Grand Timberline Lodge. Uh-huh. So, have you counted all the jobs you've worked? How the different industries you worked in? It's it's long. Uh, I had a friend say that if I wrote it in a scroll, it would go across the carpet. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah, many many different jobs, and I did that for a while. Um, but a lot of my roommates were in the service industry, as far as like food and bartending. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, for those people who don't know, I think everybody does know, the food industry is, is riddled with alcoholism and cocaine abuse. Yep. Um, and having your roommates be the, the local bartenders and, and, and uh, barbacks, there was just constant cocaine and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I wasn't into it that much. Mm-hmm. So I decided to leave because I couldn't, I felt I couldn't get away from it. Right. You know, anybody who was there who was local and working in the places was, was messed up right. on a lot of drugs. Yeah. Uh, to the point where half of the people working in bars weren't even skiing anymore or snowboarding. You know, they were just stuck in a drug and work rut. Right. So I gave away almost everything I owned uh-huh. and uh, everything I could fit into a backpack. It was about a 50 pound backpack. Um, I read some information about a mine mm-hmm. uh, in Oregon. Now I'd worked in the fashion industry. What like, kind of mine? Not a coal mine. No, it was a gem mine and they had uh, this gorgeous gem, which I had never heard of. It's in the Oregon sunstone, which is a labradorite feldspar crystal. Uh-huh. Now I'd worked in fashion. I've been to a uh, Van Cleef and our Pell shows. I've gone to Harry Winston shows. I even went to uh, a Paloma Picasso event at Tiffany's and had breakfast Mm-hmm. At Tiffany's in the morning uh, with Paloma Picasso. I'd never heard of this thing. Yeah. I said, that is crazy. It's a whole, whole new world. There's a whole new world. And this is an American gem. So without calling in advance, I decided to just walk in August into the desert for three days with a 50-pound backpack. Uh, by the time I got to the mine, my feet looked like meatloaf. They were just chewed and blistered and bloodied. And um, how did you know where to go? And I did you have enough water? It was it was rough. It was rough. I figured out a weird formula of beef jerky, uh-huh. green apples, and water and uh, canned sardines. That's what you had. Yeah, to eat. You want to have as uh, you want salt and protein because right. it's the desert. You also want. Uh, some sugar and some nutrients, which I got from the apple. Right. But you want water more than anything. You can, you don't really need to eat much. Right. Uh, but you'll die pretty quick in the desert without water. Yeah. So I made mostly room for water. Did you have to drink your own urine? <laughs> no, I drank everyone else's urine. <laughs> Cause you can drink your own urine. I think once, right. Maybe twice. And then I do remember walking in the roadside and looking for empty well, half empty, uh, water bottles and jugs that people would throw out their windows onto the side of the road, right. hoping that there would be some water in some of them. How did you, how did you ration it out and not be worried that you're going to run out? Uh, well, I knew that there was uh, three stops along the way. Okay. Uh, one was a, uh, a small Indian reservation town, okay. and it had a little teeny like uh, a corner store. How did I you could know get this? water there. Well, I, I looked it up on the maps, but I didn't back then. There wasn't. Um, this was over ten years ago. The whole uh, Google Map Quest and all that wasn't really big yet. Right. So I knew that there were several little spots I can stop on the way. Um, so get water. Uh, picked up by a Native American Indian family. Uh, let me sleep in their camper in their backyard in the Indian reservation. Uh, fill up with water wow. and then take off. And I did this each day try to make like a, a goal to land in a certain area where I can get water and wake up the next day. Uh, do you know how many miles it was to the final destination from where you started? 200. 200 miles. Yeah. You walked. Yeah. Yeah, it was hard. I mean, I got picked up a few times, but it was majority walking. Uh, I remember on one of the days uh, in part of the walk where it's uh, 
the leanest amount of people. There wasn't really any, any housing or anything. Yeah. Um, I had walked that day from seven in, in the morning until midnight without anybody picking me just up. Keep with walk. You just 50 kept... pound backpack. Yeah. Now, is it, were you trying to walk fast or slow? Just trying to keep walking. Right. You know, it was ups and downs. So you just keep going one foot in front of the other. Just don't stop. Don't stop. Yeah. Just keep walking. And because if you did stop, what are you going to do? You just lie there in you the sun? You just get so tired. And a 50 pound backpack is so hard to lift up and put back on you after you've taken it off. Right. So you're better off just keeping the momentum yeah. moving. So um, I finally got to the mine mm -hmm. and the owner said either I was the most badass person they'd ever met or the stupidest motherfucker they'd ever seen. <laughs> uh, I did not know, but they said, you know, there's coyotes and rattlesnakes and badgers and i mean they started naming mountain lions right i said i didn't know that right i mean it's they didn't a have good them thing. on the map they didn't have it on the map and it's a good thing i didn't know <laughs> i probably would not have done the trip well, you but must have heard noises at night i did and i was freaked out but uh what can you do right you know uh so finally i got there and they thought wow this guy is so crazy mm -hmm. we've never mm -hmm. had somebody do this before you have a job yeah. The, the fact that I was willing to walk for three days into the desert to come and get a job, they thought, well, that's good enough for us. And this is to work in the gem mine? In a gem mine, yes. So it's, uh, it's called open trench mining. So it looks a lot like a gravel quarry. Okay. Uh, so we dig up the earth to create a big uh, a pit area. How, how deep does it go? Uh, it was, I think, 90 feet deep okay. at one point, maybe deeper. And then you scoop up the material from the pit and you put it through a series of conveyor belts and shakers and uh, wash trummels. Mm -hmm. And all the dirt and rock you don't need goes out one area and uh, the gemstones go out another area. Yeah. And you're, you're really interested in this. It was fascinating. Yes. Um, it's all inclusive type of a job. Um, it's not a job where you say that's that's not what i'm supposed to do or that's not in my wheelhouse right uh, you have to learn welding diesel mechanics electrical work how to work a shovel how to work with uh um clients how to work the gift shop uh how to cook yeah um i mean just about everything that could go wrong you're in the desert the closest town is called lakeview and that's a hour and a half drive away mm -hmm. and how many people are, are with you uh, the two mine owners and the two mine workers and the one of the mine wives. Wow. Yeah. And you live there and, uh, and you, you stay. You don't leave. You don't leave the camp. Air conditioning? No. <laughs> no air conditioning. No air conditioning. Uh, you have to truck the water in. Mm -hmm. so that's one of your jobs. Is, uh, if you want to wash, you've got to go fill up the truck with water. So this is pretty rough living. It's very rough. Uh, generators... Uh, run only for a certain amount of time a day right. to charge things up. Yeah. Um, no matter what breaks or what you need, it's it's unless it's groceries from the local town, everything is uh, five days away. I mean, and this is all to get gems. This for is all just to extract gems from the ground, and then people ask, "Why is it worth so much?" Right. <laughs> and these are gems for what? Jewelry. For jewelry, yeah. Uh, an Oregon sunstone is a copper-bearing feldspar that mm -hmm. was created from uh, a volcano. Okay. Um, and then crystallize and then push to the surface and then different minerals are leaching through it as the process changes and also the size of the copper molecule inside of it. So if a copper molecule is large, it will reflect light and you'll see it as copper. Right. If a copper molecule is really small, it bends light and you can see that then as red mm -hmm. or as green. 
So the stone comes in clear, uh, floating copper, red, green, or all of the above mixed into one stone. So you're learning, you've got this whole education now with these gems. I got a massive education. I am a certified M. Shaw miner. Mm-hmm. I am task trained in operating front loaders, excavators, and backhoes. Yeah. Uh, although I'm not licensed, I, I did do some training in explosives in both uh, regular explosives and Sierra Blaster, which is non-concussive explosives. And that's the blast that's so and you that's can the, get, yeah. get the gems. Yeah, break rocks. So how long did you live there for? Um, I did the first season, just one season. Mm-hmm. I then moved back to uh, Oakland for a few years and, and lived in another warehouse uh-huh. uh, where I worked for, yeah, 18 roommates and I worked um, making my own jewelry yeah. uh, or designing my own jewelry and selling it. I specialize in cufflinks, very high-end cufflinks. And I was also working with uh, Oakland Records uh-huh. at the time uh, doing um, promotions and uh, graphic design work and stuff like that. Another total different industry. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But then after I left uh, Oakland, uh, I went back to work at the mines. You went back to the same spot. In yeah, the desert. yeah. I asked them if uh, if I could go back. It'd been several years. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, "All right, we'll we'll see how you're doing." And to prove to myself that I could still do it, mm-hmm. I walked back to the mine again. You did that walk again. I did the three day walk again. Yeah, um, that was uh, I think four years ago or five years ago. Wow! And so I was about forty five years old at the time. Whoa! So. What did you do differently on the second walk? The second time, I, got, I really uh, immersed myself and got more involved. I learned really how to uh, dismantle and, and repair heavy equipment. No, but on the actual walk? On the walk? You, you weren't worried about the coyotes? Or? No, this time, um, this time I wasn't worried, and this time I was more sure about where the stops were, the locations right. to sleep and to, and to rest um, were. And um, also this time they were expecting me. Right. So the final stop was instead of going all the way into the mine was to stop at a small cowboy. It's not really a town. It's just a building. It's called Plush, Oregon, and it's a cattle area. And the town of Plush has a a building in it. Um, And it's the bar, restaurant, grocery store, uh, mail, um, package area, everything. (laughs) Hunting supply. I mean, you are living a life. (laughs) So, um, I was able to make it to there and then get picked up this time. Right. But, uh, I spent several years, um, spent several years there. Yeah. Working at the mine and then also got invited to, and got the opportunity to work the gem and trade shows, which is yet another, uh, facet of, Mm-hmm. the jewelry and gem industry. So after several years of understanding the process of uh, mining, um, I then got to understand how do you then sell the material. Right. And yeah. so learning uh, things on uh, cutting, mm-hmm. ca- uh, carving, cabochons, uh, manufacturing of jewelry. So are you uh, traveling around to different shows now? Uh, no, most, most of the big shows uh, is uh, Quartzsite, Arizona, mm-hmm. which is a huge RV getaway for snowbirds as well. Right. So uh, and then Tucson, Arizona, which is the world's largest gem and mineral show okay. on planet Earth. Uh-huh. So you're into this gem. I love it now. Yeah. And you have your own company? I have a company, Adonis and King. Adonis um, and King? Yes, Adonis and King. Okay. Um, and uh, Malin, a.k.a. Buzz King, is my West Coast partner. Uh-huh. Um, is there a website? Uh, we, I just shut the website down mm-hmm. um, from finishing the trade shows because I couldn't satisfy orders. Uh-huh. It was an e-commerce site. 
Okay. I think I'm going to reopen uh, the website this time without the e-commerce because I travel so much and do by appointment only, which I originally done when I first started with cufflinks. Right. And just have like a, a it be a doorway, a gateway, a springboard to um, getting things done. So you can see jewelry I've made in the past. And if you want, you can give me a call and uh, I can custom make you. Uh, whatever you want, or you can choose some of the stuff in the gallery that I'll have up. I also sell, though, a lot of uh, uncut and loose gems. Yeah. So many people have never seen that in the industry. Uh, I thought it was interesting. I ran into a young man who's starting an e-commerce site. Yeah. Uh, he grew up as the son of a jeweler family, and I brought him some uncut gems. He'd never seen it before. He'd never seen a garnet uncut. He never saw opal uncut. He yeah. never saw, you know, jasper un- uncabbed. It's so when so it's funny. uncut, it doesn't have the smoothness to it? Nothing. It's right. just how Mother Nature gives it to you. And quite often, it's quite ugly. Right. Uh, you know, raw stones are ugly mm-hmm. often. Um, until you cut them. Until you, you cut it the... and polish it and, and create a shape. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is something you're doing. So right now I'm doing, uh, I started last year, um, International School of Gemology. I took a few courses, but unfortunately, they were in the middle of being turned into a non-for-profit. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff got lost, and part of my schooling got lost in the transfer from one company ownership to a, another. Right. So I have to start again. <laughs> I have a feeling like this. I'm, this is like, oh, and this is where Adonis ended up, but. Who knows? You might be on some totally different thing. Who knows? But I, I'm trying really hard to stay in this. I'm really attracted to it. And it has all of the different things from all the other jobs. Um, it's got the instant satisfaction and creativity of working in the food industry. Uh-huh. Uh, it's got that get your hands dirty, uh, you know, um, right. man of the people like a plumber or, or a farmer would do. Right. You're out there in the dirt. Yeah. Um, but also you're you're it's the same as the fashion industry. I right. mean, when you think about it, uh it's not like minerals that are used in industrial use. We don't need jewelry. It's right. It's, it's not something necessary. So one of my bosses said, You're not just in the mining industry, Adonis. You're in the vanity totally. industry. And yeah. that is and that's a big part of it. Um if it wasn't for people's vanity, you wouldn't be walking 200 miles through a desert exactly. to go 90, mile, 90 feet in the ground. Yeah. Um, so I do understand it is something that people don't need, mm-hmm. but it's so interesting and not many jobs. Uh, one minute you're uh, in the dirt uh, with a pickaxe and a shovel and uh, hydraulic fluid all over you. And the next minute you're wearing a beautiful suit and you're selling somebody a $5,000 set of cufflinks with diamonds in it. I mean, not many jobs allow that kind of uh, diversity in your job. Yeah. And I love that I can get dirty, and I love that I can look nice and sell somebody something that is a... Uh, it's a fascinating life, man. It's, it's very cool. I'm enjoying it. Uh, I now, for a while, I'm going to be here in, in New York mm-hmm. and try to uh, improve my education. With the gems? With the gems, yeah. 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 Man, it's inspiring stuff. Well, thank you for having me, Gary. It's great. And I hope uh, to finally be able to see you perform Come comedy. Uh, where will you be next? Um, it's all on my website, probably at LOL Comedy Club, which, you know. That's in Times Square? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. Thanks, Adonis.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.